0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jeff Meekum, and today get ready for twice the learning and twice the fun as we're joined by two very special guests to discuss today's topic, primary hyperparathyroidism. Our first guest is medical endocrinologist Dr. Bithika Thompson, and our second is microvascular-trained head and neck surgeon Dr. Brent Chang. As a portion of their practice, they overlap in the management of disorders of the thyroid and parathyroid glands. Both Dr. Thompson and Dr. Chang have been excellent mentors to me throughout medical school and residency, and you'll see today that they have a certain knack for being able to teach complex information in a way simple enough that even I can understand it. So we're fortunate to have them on the show. Dr. Thompson, Dr. Chang, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi there. Before I start, I'll say that today's topic is primary hyperparathyroidism, and that being said, I wanted to capitalize on having a medical endocrinologist with us today, so we decided to tack on, at the end of the episode, iatrogenic hypoparathyroidism, which is most often associated with thyroid surgery. Though not entirely related to the subject of today's material, it should tie in nicely given our discussion today about calcium regulation via the parathyroid hormone. So Dr. Thompson, I'll start with you. I know parathyroid and calcium physiology can be a very extensive topic, but would you be able to break down the basics of parathyroid physiology?
1: Absolutely. So parathyroid hormone is a 84 amino acid hormone uh, protein. Uh, It has a very short half life of about three to five minutes and your body will secrete parathyroid hormone uh, in response to low ionized calcium. Okay. So Um, when the calcium is low, uh, your body should be increasing PTH secretion, um, and when the calcium is elevated, uh, your body should be trying to inhibit PTH secretion. Um, There are a lot of other things that can affect uh, PTH, and some of the things we'll discuss later, like, um, you know, kidney disease and vitamin D levels and so forth, but the main thing to think about, first and foremost, is the effect of calcium on PTH. Uh, It's very important to think about what we're calling ionized calcium, um, which is uh, your free and active calcium, okay? Remember that um, total calcium and ionized calcium are very different. Uh, Calcium is 55% bound to albumin, and only 45% is in the ionized state. Um, And so the uh, free amount of calcium, which is the amount that regulates PTH secretion, is very much affected by both albumin concentration and pH. Um, I think, you know, we always think about pH. I would say that that albumin is the thing that you really want to think a little bit more about when you are evaluating a patient um, for calcium issues. Uh, You always want to check their albumin and and correct uh, for what we call an actual calcium level uh, based on the albumin. Uh, So for example, for every uh, one uh, milligram decrease in albumin, uh, there's going to be a 0.8 milligram decrease in calcium. Uh, So one of the most common things I see is patients that are referred to me for high calcium, and when we actually correct that calcium for their albumin, uh, it is normal, okay? And so that is a very important point. You get away from that. You know, you don't have to correct it at all if you obtain an ionized calcium uh, because you're getting an actual free calcium level. Um, When we think about parathyroid hormone, it's very important that you think about the relationship of parathyroid hormone. Uh, to a few key areas, okay? So you want to be knowing uh, what parathyroid hormone does in the level of the kidney, um, at the level of the intestine, and at the level of the bone. Um, At the level of the kidney, parathyroid hormone is responsible for conversion of inactive vitamin D, which is going to be your 25-hydroxyvitamin D, to your active vitamin D, uh, which is 125-hydroxyvitamin D. Um, This is going to, at the level of the uh, nephron, increase your calcium reabsorption, and it's going to increase uh, phosphorus excretion. So it's phosphaturic, okay? So you're thinking about PTH um, acting at the kidney to make active vitamin D and excrete phosphorus um, and absorb calcium, okay, from, from the kidney. Um, in the testins, you want to think about uh, PTH uh, working to increase calcium and phosphorus absorption. And then at the bone, you want to think about the action of PTH um, causing Uh, osteoclast activity, okay? And so it stimulates uh, osteoblasts to increase uh, cyclic AMP leading to osteoclast activity. All of these have the downstream effect then of increasing uh, your calcium. So when we think about PTH, you should be thinking about the action of PTH increasing uh, your blood calcium and decreasing your serum phosphorus uh, because it acts as a phosphaturic.
0: Great, and just while we're there, calcitonin is often frequently brought up in terms of calcium regulation. Does it have a large effect, and what does it do?
1: Yeah, so you know when you you know when you think about calcitonin, um, you know calcitonin is made by the C cells of the thyroid gland. It does not have an effect um, on uh, your serum calcium, and so you shouldn't be thinking about it as having a a significant effect on your serum calcium. Um, It can be released uh, in response to uh, high serum calcium, but but I wouldn't think of it as a significant player uh, in all of this.
0: I think that's commonly misunderstood and I appreciate you clarifying. Mm -hmm. Great. Now that we have some background intro into the physiology, let's shift gears and discuss some of the important anatomic considerations when thinking about parathyroid surgery. Dr. Chang, I'm going to throw you an easy one. What does a normal parathyroid gland actually look like?
2: Yeah. So a normal gland is oval shaped. They're usually quite small. So uh, on average it's probably about 30 milligrams. Um, They, uh, the classic color that's talked about is a 10 color, but they can be really anywhere from yellow to brown. Um, it's a little bit variable depending on your age and fat
0: content and that sort of things. Now, another one that frequently gets asked in the operating room, what are some of the important intraoperative landmarks and locations that you can find the parathyroid glands in?
2: Yeah. So um, this is important surgically. So it's a really good um, question, important concept to know. The um, classic, relationship is where the glands are relative to the recurrent laryngeal nerves. So You have four glands, you have uh, two on either side, and then you have superior and inferior glands. Um, the uh, relationship is, um, kind of important from a surgical standpoint. So, um, I have a mnemonic for this because when you're in the operating room and you're a medical student or you're a resident and someone asks you, you don't, you don't really have time to think it through. You just got to regurgitate it quickly. So the mnemonic I use is I am SLP. Um, So the inferior gland is anteromedial and the superior gland is lateral and posterior to the nerve. The other way to think about this is if you think about the recurrent laryngeal nerve in a coronal plane, the superior gland is dorsal to that plane and the inferior gland is ventral to that plane Um, in terms of other landmarks. So they're usually in the tracheoesophageal groove. The uh, superior gland uh, is typically found at the cracothyroid junction about one centimeter or within one centimeter uh, of the junction of the recurrent laryngeal nerve and the inferior thyroid artery, and that's reasonably consistent. Uh, The inferior gland is more variable, so most of them happen near the lower pole of the thyroid. Um, Probably something like less than 30% happen somewhere between that and the thymus.
0: Do you mind talking about blood supply of the parathyroid glands?
2: Yeah, so the predominant blood supply is from the inferior thyroid artery, um, this generally supplies the superior and inferior glands. You can have some collateral blood supply, so a small percentage of people will get supply from the superior thyroid artery. Um, so it, it's a little bit dependent, but it mostly comes from the inferior thyroid artery.
0: And what about abnormal numbers of parathyroid glands? Is this common, uh, more, or less than four?
2: So it's reasonably uncommon to have either supernumerary glands or or less than the typical four. They've done some uh, cadaver studies on this, so that's obviously a little bit tricky to study. Um, the, those studies will tell you that less than 5% of people have less than four glands, uh, and probably states will say a similar number have supernumerary glands.
0: And obviously, we can't talk anatomy without a touch of embryology. Dr. Chang, what are the embryologic origins of the parathyroid glands, and why do their origins matter clinically?
2: Yeah, so just in very brief fashion, they come from the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches. So the uh, super glands come from the fourth pharyngeal pouch, and the inferior glands come from the third pharyngeal pouch, which is a little bit uh, inverse if you think about it. Um, it's important because of um, an entity known as an ectopic parathyroid, or um, you can have ectopic parathyroid adenomas. So the um, the third pouch third pharyngeal pouch becomes your thymus, which descends from about the angle of your mandible down into the mediastinum. And what that does is it takes the inferior parathyroid glands with it. And so what that means is that there's more variability in where the inferior parathyroid glands can end up.
0: Great. Well, let's move on to some pathology now. Dr. Thompson, today we're going to focus primarily on primary hyperparathyroidism Would you mind quickly reviewing the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism?
1: Absolutely. So primary hyperparathyroidism refers to um, a primary problem with the parathyroids themselves, right? So in that setting, um, it is the elevated PTH uh, from the parathyroid that is causing hypercalcemia. Uh, So in that setting, you're expecting to see, you know, a a high calcium with a high PTH or, a, um, you know, normal calcium with a high PTH, you know, we, we can see normal calcemic uh, hyperparathyroidism as well. Uh, secondary hyperparathyroidism is compensatory PTH, parathyroid hyperplasia from hypocalcemia, right? So this is an appropriate response um, of the parathyroid glands to what is, what they're seeing as a reduced amount um, of, of calcium, right? And so we think about this as occurring Mostly on the setting of kidney disease and vitamin D deficiency, those are the ones you want to think about. Um, and in tertiary hyperparathyroidism, this is autonomous uh, parathyroid hormone production. Um, and in most settings, we're going to see that in, in long-term and uh, stage renal disease.
0: So when we talk about four-gland hyperplasia, is that most often secondary?
1: That's exactly right, yes. Mm-hmm
0: then maybe one more question, sorry to put you on the spot. In terms of lab values and trying to distinguish between these, is there something simple to keep in mind or is this harder to
1: tease out? You know, it's actually, it's like anything. I think if you understand the physiology, it's actually quite simple, right? So, so really when you're thinking about this, you want... To get your calcium, you know, you want to normalize it. You, know, you want to make sure it's, it's a real calcium, you know, it's an ionized calcium or corrected calcium. Um, you need a PTH. And then you want to exclude, you want to make sure that if you're seeing an elevated PTH, um, that you know that that patient isn't vitamin D deficient. So you need a vitamin D level. And you want to make sure that the kidney function is normal. So I would say that the main things that you want to really think about up front would be your calcium, your PTH. Um... Your albumin to correct your calcium, uh, your vitamin D, um, and then knowing what their kidney function is.
0: In terms of epidemiology, how common is primary hyperparathyroidism, and are there any particular risk factors that predispose someone to developing primary hyperparathyroidism?
1: So it's quite common. You know, the incidence is about one in a thousand. Um, in this setting, uh, more common in Females uh, than in males. Uh, women are actually twice as affected as men, and it occurs, you know, most commonly we start to see it uh, in the age range of about fifty to sixty-five. Uh, so you want to think about, you know, postmenopausal women uh, would be be an area where we might see that, you know, the incidence would be higher. Um, now there are certainly, you know, kind of um, you know genetic disorders that predispose to this. Uh, the ones that we think about are are Men syndromes, you know. Um, and we'll, we can discuss those a little bit later, but but really, um, there isn't a lot of uh, risk. You know, in terms of risk factors, uh, these are, are relatively uncommon uh, genetic syndromes, um, and and then an entity we call familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, uh, which we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, radiation exposure is a risk, um, but um, these these are very very small, um, you know, very small proportion of patients. The majority of them, we we don't know how to identify any risk factors.
0: Dr. Thompson, I think usually by the time they show up in our clinic, they've been through an endocrinologist's office. So I think we'd all be curious to know, how is it that these patients typically present to your clinic?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Nowadays, um, these patients are coming to our clinic because usually they have just been incidentally noted to have a high calcium on routine lab work. You know, so a lot of these patients come in and you ask them all kinds of questions about possible symptoms. And some of them have maybe some symptoms, but a lot of them are asymptomatic, right? So so they're just going for their routine labs. They have a calcium that shows up as being high, um, and they get a workup. And, and that's that's the nice thing about, you know, um, you know, kind of how things work now is that the patients are getting tested so frequently that we can find this before it causes damage, right? Which is as opposed to, um, you know, many years ago where patients would present with a lot of these end-stage kind of complications of, of hyperparathyroidism. Um, when we think about symptoms... Uh, symptoms, if they are present, uh, are more common in patients who have high calcium levels, right? So, so, and when I talk about high calcium levels, I see symptoms more frequently in patients who have a calcium that's about a point above normal. Okay, so um, if it's just mildly high, I don't expect to have a whole lot of symptoms, and that's very important when you discuss with patients because it's very important to set, um, you know, just just to make them understand, you know, set appropriate kind of uh, just. Uh, you know, really make sure that they they understand that it's not um, reasonable to think that going into a surgery is going to fix all of their symptoms if if their calcium is just mildly high, and, and maybe their symptoms um, are not not due to their high calcium. Um, so setting appropriate expectations uh, is important. Um, when I think about, you know, symptoms, you always hear, uh, very, very common, you know, we hear stones, bones, groans, and uh, psychiatric overtones, right? So we think about nephrolithiasis, uh, osteitis fibrosis, cystica, Uh, cholelithiasis, and confusion. And so I ask patients about all those things, you know, all those kinds of symptoms. Um, When you're going through them and and talking to patients, you want to think about the renal complications. So are you peeing a lot, you know? Um, Have you had kidney stones? Um, And nephrolithiasis is is pretty common, you know, so about 10 to 20 percent of cases. Um, You want to ask them about GI complaints, uh, constipation, dyspepsia, pancreatitis, You ask them about muscle weakness and bone pain and joint pain, um, history of fractures, you know, and then we're always doing a bone density to identify those patients who may have osteoporosis um, because we would want to treat them for sure. Um, But the, the most important point here is that most patients you're going to see are going to be asymptomatic or just very mildly symptomatic.
0: And so Dr. Chang, by the time they get to your office, I guess, how do they present and do these people ever just walk in on their own or are they typically going through endocrinology?
2: Yeah, so it's pretty uncommon for someone to get referred, at least to us, without having seen an endocrinologist first. So that's typically how they show up in, in my office. Um, occasionally, we'll get patients who have had some sort of workup for hypercal- hypercalcemia uh, that was discovered incidentally from maybe an outside otolaryngologist um, and sent them over without first sending them to the endocrinologist. But almost always, they're coming through that route.
0: And now we typically think of primary hyperparathyroidism is driven by adenomas or benign disease, but what kind of red flags prompt you to worry about it being cancerous and being a parathyroid carcinoma?
2: Yeah. So the thing to know about that is that it's exceedingly uncommon to get a carcinoma of the parathyroid. The, the red flags that are sort of talked about are things like an extremely high PTH. So something like in the thousands um, is kind of more typical. Uh, anything unusual sort of suggesting some sort of uh, mass effect or invasion in the area. So things like a vocal cord paralysis, if you can feel a mass in there, those things are um, kind of would set your alarm bells off. But it's important to know that this is the sort of thing that most endocrine surgeons will see maybe once in their career. So it's extremely uncommon.
0: Hopefully able to reassure some patients when they walk in the door concerned about it too. And Dr. Thompson, what are the things that are on your mind in regards to a differential when someone shows up with hyperparathyroidism? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, we, you know, when we see someone with hyperparathyroidism, and we have to kind of think back to what we were discussing previously about trying to determine is this primary hyperparathyroidism, is it secondary hyperparathyroidism? Um, and so when we're thinking about primary hyperparathyroidism, we're primarily talking about, you know, an adenoma. Uh, you want to think about Um, a genetic predisposition, so these are going to be the MEN syndromes. Um, PTH is elevated with an elevated calcium in this entity that we call familial hypercalciuric hypercalcemia. Um, It's very important uh, to uh, distinguish that from primary hyperparathyroidism due to adenoma because you know we don't operate on those patients. Um, And so uh, we really want to exclude that diagnosis, and we do that uh, by measuring a a 24-hour urine uh, calcium. Um, and then you always want to think about carcinoma, um, as, as Dr. Chang mentioned, uh, although that's exceedingly rare. Uh, for secondary causes, uh, kidney disease is going to be by far the most common. You know, in, in the setting of kidney disease, the compensatory PTH elevation is necessary. Um, and so we, we expect to see that. Um, bone disorders, uh, so um, you know, sometimes we can see this uh, in the setting of uh, bony metastases or other bone disorders. Um, And then uh, very rarely, uh, you can see this with perineoplastic uh, disorders, Um, and then tertiary hyperparathyroidism. You want to be thinking again of these patients, usually with end-stage renal disease of very long duration.
0: And we've already kind of brought this up a few times. I know there's too many syndromes related with hyperparathyroidism to discuss in detail and probably beyond the scope of what we're trying to accomplish here. But as MEN1 and MEN2 are frequently discussed, would you mind giving us an overview of how these two disorders relate to the parathyroid glands?
1: Absolutely. So MEN1 is a autosomal dominant um, syndrome. Uh, It is the MEN1 gene, which encodes uh, Menin. Um, And the vast majority of patients with MEN1, uh, 95%, are going to develop hyperparathyroidism by the age of 50. Okay, So these patients are going to present with hyperparathyroidism. um, And the only thing that would distinguish them is that they they tend to um, present much earlier in life, right, rather than someone that has a sporadic uh, hyperparathyroidism. Um, and MEN2, it's also autosomal dominant. Uh, it's the RET gene. And not as many patients with MEN2, A, are going to develop parathyroid tumors. It's about
0: 30%. Do you find that patients that have MEN1 or 2 have family members that say, oh, yeah, we already know we have this, they they had the same presentation previously, or do they walk into clinic without knowing?
1: You know, my experience, I do I, get to see a lot of these patients, you know, just because, uh, you know, we, we are a referral center, I'd say it's kind of half and half, you know, it's amazing how um, you think so. Um, and that's not always the case. We see a lot of new diagnoses, you know, new patients. Um, and and then yet we see a lot that, that obviously you're taking history and, and you get all the right clues. Um, and patients are very well aware of their family history.
0: The other genetic syndrome that frequently gets brought up, we've already mentioned it here is familial hypercalcemic hypocalciuria. Would you mind talking about that one as well?
1: Absolutely. So um, this is a disorder of the calcium sensing receptor. And the key things um, on on diagnosis are that um, when you're doing lab testing, it's going to look very similar. Uh, Your calcium and your PTH are both going to be elevated. Uh, But the key thing here is that if you did a 24-hour urine calcium, it's going to be exceedingly low. So we expect that to be less than 100 in these patients. Um, and so that's why it's very important as part of this workup to do that urinary collection. Um, the main reason being because uh, this is not a surgical treatment, you know. So this is an autosomal dominant um, disorder uh, that has this asymptomatic lifelong hypercalcemia. Um, and so surgery is not going to fix this problem. Um, and Surgery should not be done uh, on these patients. So you really want to make sure you identify them.
0: Absolutely. Um, next up is workup. We've already talked a bit about this, but Dr. Thompson, specifically for primary hyperparathyroidism, what do you include in kind of your panel? And do you prefer that these are ever done by us in the ENT, or would you rather them come to you and have them done right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, it's always nice to see the labs ahead of time so you have something to discuss with the patients. You know, that being said, it's patients also don't like being told that one thing is missing, right? And we have to send them back down or repeat the whole thing. And, you know, the thing about these labs is that really, ideally, they all need to be done at the same time, right? So you're getting a snapshot of what's happening at that time, you know? So getting all these labs and then thinking that you can just add on a vitamin D, you know, a few months later on its own, and it's going to, you know, you're going to be able to know that that's what the vitamin D would have been when you had the labs a few months ago is is incorrect. You know, the, the greatest example of that would be trying to correct a calcium level. You know, you get this calcium without an albumin, and you don't know, is it actually high or not? Um, and if you add on just a random albumin, you know, weeks later, you don't know if that corresponds, right? And so you really do need to see these labs together. Um, the, the main ones, you know, you always want to make sure you have a correct calcium, so an ionized calcium or a calcium and albumin. You want a parathyroid hormone. Um, you need to know what your vitamin D level is, you know, to exclude secondary hyperparathyroidism. Um, I see that a lot. You know, I see these patients that come in with calcium levels that are not overly high, but PTHs that are really, really high, and they've been told they have primary hyperparathyroidism and their vitamin Ds are real low, and we correct that, and it it normalizes. Um, You always want to get a 24-hour urine calcium. Um, It's nice to have a phosphorus level, um, you know, as we discussed, you know, the effect of PTH on phosphorus. Um, If you have a suspicion for FHH, you know, later steps can include... Um, you know, doing genetic screening and so forth. But your initial evaluation is going to be those key things. So so, so creatinine, vitamin D, calcium, albumin, PTH, 24-hour urine calcium.
0: Okay. And workup also imaging is important for these, especially when deciding to go to surgery. Dr. Chang, would you be able to discuss the different types of imaging available and in which settings they might be most useful?
2: Yeah. So there's a few things that are often done and then a few kind of more uncommon ones. So Most common ones you'll see are a Sestamibi scan or um, a Technetium-99 scan. So this is a nuclear medicine scan. This is probably the most traditional for localization, uh, historically the most accurate. Uh, You can overlay this with a CT scan. It's called a SPECT or a single photon emission CT, um, which increases the sensitivity a bit and lets you get some better cross-sectional anatomy. Uh, It's got quite good sensitivity as well as specificity. Uh, This was interestingly first noted when they were doing technetium scans for cardiac studies, um, what happens is they, the patient gets injected with technetium and then you do delayed images to look at uptake and things like your uh, parathyroid glands um, should have persistent uptake after that. Um, if you have things like thyroid nodules or lymph nodes that can also confound the imaging, so that's one thing to take into consideration. An ultrasound is quite sensitive when visualizing anatomy of the neck. It's often done uh, either in conjunction or first. Um, it can be helpful when you're looking at things like concurrent thyroid pathology, um, as thyroid nodules are quite common. Um, one thing to consider is that uh, ultrasound is um, dependent on who's doing it. So the, um, the quality of your ultrasound quality of report is a bit dependent on the technician or who's doing it. And so um, in the right hands, this can be a very useful tool, um, but it should be interpreted with that that there is some variability in it. Um, you can also do intraoperative ultrasounds as well. Um, the other things you'll come in, commonly see are a CT scan, which is kind of uh, bread and butter for just cross-sectional neck anatomy. Um, they often can be helpful. Uh, things like parathyroid glands or small adenomas can be missed by this. And so there's also something called a 4 D CT scan, which is relatively new kind of imaging technology that is a CT scan done where you're essentially timing it with different phases of contrast, so that you can see um, different uptakes. So traditionally, that's with you get a non-contrast scan as well as a um, an arterial phase and then a delayed venous phase. And so the the 4D or the fourth dimension that's talked about is actually time. It's sort of how it's um, why it's called that. Um, it can be quite sensitive, and is, is I think um, being done more and more frequently these days. Uh, things like MRI and PET scans can be done and, and can help you localize a parathyroid. Um, however, those are kind of uncommon for for this presentation, so usually not done.
0: And with that 4D CT scan, would you say that it's done most often when you can't localize it on other imaging, or do you jump right to it?
2: Uh, I would say it's usually kind of a backup thing for either... Um, Non uh, something that doesn't localize on the initial scans like a system maybe in an ultrasound uh, or something unusual like revision case or persistent disease. I, I personally don't order a 4D CT scan right away, but I do think it can be helpful in those cases So things like non-localizing or um, we'll often see things like discrepant imaging where the ultrasound says one thing and then the system maybe doesn't quite corroborate it. So I think it can be helpful in that setting as well.
0: In my review, there's also some invasive testing like angiography, venous sampling, FNA. Do either of you guys use this, um, and when would you if you do?
2: So usually these things are reserved for revision cases or things like prior treatment failures. The invasive techniques are exactly that. They're invasive, and so we try not to do them unless we need to. Um, I will say the ones like uh, central venous sampling are kind of not commonly done these days. Uh, One that I consider not that invasive is the FNA like you're talking about. So you can do a PTH washout. So they can sample something and then send a PTH off that sample. And it's the same morbidity essentially as a ultrasound guided needle biopsy and can be very helpful for things like revision cases or um, difficult to localize parathyroid anonomas.
0: Do you have anything to add, Dr. Thompson?
1: Nope, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, if we use any of those, that's the one that we use. And again, we don't use it routinely, but it does come quite in handy uh, when we need it and we're trying to distinguish um, what needs to be operated on, what we're looking at. Um, and that's and an easy test to do.
0: Now, this might come as a surprise to many surgeons, but hyperparathyroidism can be treated medically. Dr. Thompson, you mind talking about what non-surgical options exist for treatment of hyperparathyroidism?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, you know, we do this quite a bit. Um, you know, it is certainly indicated in a patient who may just be too sick for surgery, right? And and we see those patients and um, some of them, uh, you know, have calcium levels that are so, so exceedingly high um, and they're symptomatic and we really can't get by without doing anything for them. There are also some patients who have high calcium levels and they may have an, an isolated identifiable adenoma, but they don't want to go to surgery. You know what I mean? And so there are cases um, on both sides where, where we do that, where surgery may not be an option or patients may not desire surgery. Um, you know, we used to not have a, as great of, of drugs, um, but now uh, we have these great drugs called um, calcimimetics, um, and the one that you'll recognize is cinecalcid or sensipar. Um, that is by far uh, the most commonly used drug. Um and basically, they act on uh, they activate the calcium sensing receptor in the parathyroid gland, and they work to inhibit parathyroid hormone secretion in that way. Um, and so we use those, um, and we have patients that are on those uh, for years, you know, and, and they do fine, and we can get the the calcium levels down. Um, now, other options include, you know, kind of other drugs we know that can lower calcium: uh, bisphosphonates, calcitonin, can't be used long term, um, so forth. Obviously, if someone comes in and they have a critically high calcium, we can do other life-saving measures like hemodialysis and all that. But in terms of long-term um, kind of solutions outside of surgery, I would say that calcium mimetics are going to be your drug of choice.
0: And so in that same vein, you sort of mentioned this already, but Dr. Thompson, when do you decide to refer to a surgeon? And then maybe Dr. Cheng at the end, if you have anything additional to add once they arrive in your office to say, yes, let's go ahead and take them to surgery. What, what are some of the factors that go into that decision?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So we have um, good consensus guidelines. We have NIH consensus guidelines that kind of uh, weigh the risks and benefits of surgery versus, you know, non operative management, which is going to be um, just monitoring in a patient that we consider to have asymptomatic hyperparathyroidism. Um, So when you're thinking about this, you want to be thinking about, you know, the idea of doing surgery in someone who is young and healthy and hasn't developed any of these long-term risks, but is at high risk because of their age, right? So, so as time passes, they're going to be at high risk. Um, or in patients that have these, have shown to have known disease sequela from hyperparathyroidism. And so that's how I like to think about those. Um, and the testing that we do to kind of identify those patients follows exactly these recommendations. So if you see someone um, who's young, so we say age less than 50, um, someone that has this calcium level that I mentioned earlier that is above normal, to the degree where where it's about a point above normal, um, that's going to be high enough where we would want to consider surgery. Um, If they have osteoporosis or history of fracture, bone densities that are consistent with osteoporosis, um, vertebral fracture, you know, I mentioned on imaging, uh, kidney stones, um, patients that have kidney disease, these are all patients in which we know that the Benefit outweighs the risk uh, of surgery, so these are all patients in which I would refer to surgery uh, because we know that they have some of these sequelae and we want to, um, you know, operate.
0: And by the time they've got to your office, Doctor Chang, it, what goes into your decision making of taking someone to surgery versus not?
2: Yeah, so um, pretty much if Doctor Thompson tells me to take out, it, I it will. But uh, joking aside, there there are um, certain variables. So the thing is surgeons that we have a good sense of are one, how well the patients will tolerate surgery in a general anesthetic. And we can often use that to kind of adjust, you know, how how um, how much we want to take them to surgery based on things like their perioperative risk. Um, there's also things like based on the imaging, you sort of should have a sense as a surgeon, how likely you are to find it, whether or not it's localizing or non-localizing. And then based on those things, it's, I think, just important to make sure you're communicating with your endocrinologist about those variables and you know we there's a lot of cases that end up being kind of borderline and so it's important to have a bit of uh, dialogue for those patients
0: and we'll talk about that at the end but i think what i'm getting here is that it's important to be able to trust the endocrinologist you work with because it sounds like a lot of the workup is done almost before they get to your office
2: yeah definitely
0: Um, And in regards to once you've made the decision to go to surgery, Dr. Chang, what goes into your decision preoperatively or maybe intraoperatively deciding when to start with a unilateral neck exploration for single gland excision versus like a four gland exploration?
2: Yeah, so this is actually a little bit controversial um, and it depends, it's a bit surgeon dependent. So the other, um, it's often called something like a targeted parathyroidectomy or a minimally invasive parathyroidectomy. Uh, as opposed to bilateral or foregland exploration. Um, some surgeons will kind of advocate for a foregland exploration on everyone. That's probably um, less common. Um, the We often will start with a targeted parathyroidectomy if we're fairly confident on the preoperative localization. Uh, I would say, as a general rule, the more confident you are in localization for the pre-op imaging, probably the lower likelihood that you're going to do a foregland exploration. That being said, uh, you don't really know what you're going to find in there. And so at least in my hands, I kind of talk to all my patients and consent them that we might need to kind of look everywhere. Um, I kind of think of parathyroids, particularly adenomas, as sort of like opening a present on Christmas morning. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be great most of the time, but sometimes it, it's going to be a lumpical. <laughs>
0: Um, and I think in in line with that decision, obviously, is intraoperative parathyroid hormone monitoring. Dr. Chang, would you mind talking about what that is and how it plays a role in your surgical decision making?
2: Yeah. So essentially, this is a test done at the time of surgery that helps you biochemically confirm if you've addressed the problem. So it's a rapid PTH assay. Um, this is commonly can be done quite quickly. So, you know, somewhere from 10 to 30 minutes, although that depends a lot on where it's being done and if it's, you know, um, how far the lab is, how long the specimen takes together. So it can be quite variable. Um, it, it's usually drawn uh, peripherally, so either from an arterial line or a venous draw, but it can be done uh, from the neck. That's le- less common, um, but you can sample things like the anterior jugular veins, which technically are are probably part of your peripheral system, but um, there's different ways to do it. Uh, usually start with the baseline at the start of the case uh, and then usually it's a 10 to 15 minute post-excision uh, sample. So you're comparing those two. Generally, you want to see a drop of 50%, um, which is predictive of a cure. That being said, it depends what you're starting with. So you also want to see it drop into the normal range. And probably for most cases, you want to see it go closer to less than 30%. So that obviously is...
0: And just to clarify, you can also drop from arterial sources as well,
2: right? Um. That's probably also a little bit controversial. It, it um, From a peripheral sample, it probably doesn't make a difference. So the most common ways we do this are sometimes at the start of the case, the anesthesiologist will put in an arterial line because it's easier to draw multiple samples, um, but you can also just stick a vein for it. And both are, are shown to be pretty accurate.
0: All right. So as I mentioned, the less likely in parathyroid surgery, uh, then in thyroid surgery, post-operative hypocalcemia is a potential complication of parathyroid surgery. So while we have Dr. Thompson here with us, I thought we'd capitalize on it and discuss on post-operative, usually transient hypocalcemia and hypoparathyroidism and its management. So Dr. Thompson, first and foremost, what are the symptoms of hypocalcemia and when does it become an emergency and when it can be managed in the outpatient setting?
1: You know, so the main symptoms of uh, hypocalcemia are paresthesias. So this is, you know, asking patients, do you feel, you know, numbness and tingling, usually around your mouth uh, or in your fingertips, you know, is where they're going to explain it. Uh, it can lead to muscle cramps and tetany and seizures. Um, but but mostly you ask patients and they say, yes, I, I have been noticing, I feel a little numb around my mouth or my fingers. And this is a new feeling. So, so they're usually, um, you know, quite on top of that and and can tell you they're feeling that um, you know, we test this clinically, right? So so we use, um, you know, certain diagnostic uh, shavastic sign, which is this twitching of uh, the facial muscles when you tap on the facial nerve. Um, and then Trousseau's sign, uh, which is arm flexion with a blood pressure cough. So we can test that. We can see those things. Um, if it gets real low, it can lead to EKG changes, right? And it can be um, deadly, you know? And so when we think about hypocalcemia, usually we're monitoring these patients. And if we start to see uh, if, you, if your calcium is, is less than seven, you want to be monitoring them very closely in a hospital setting and, and replacing their calcium and um, often their trial, and really uh, watching for these things. Um, if, you know, usually this is going to show up after surgery, you're going to kind of know it's a problem, you're going to see it falling, and so you can anticipate that, and then you'll know who you need to follow closely, but... Um, you know, that's where we would think about it being emergent and, and maybe send. In, you know, that's where you tell a patient you need to go to the emergency room and get, get admitted to the hospital um, if their calcium levels when you check them are going to be less than 7. Um, if they're, they're higher than that and the patient's doing okay, sometimes you can manage that in an outpatient setting in an educated patient who's already on therapy and you have close follow-up. Um, but if you're ever in doubt and the patient's really symptomatic and it seems to be falling, you, you can always send them to the emergency room.
0: And not an uncommon question you get on call. But let's say you get a call from a patient who just recently had thyroid or parathyroid surgery, and they're complaining of one of these symptoms. Um, what would be your advice to the ENT resident on call in that situation?
1: Yeah. So the first thing you always do when you're talking to a patient—they have these symptoms—is you tell them to take some calcium, okay? And so this is something where, just in follow-up for patients who have this as a chronic issue, it's just something you always want to emphasize to them. You know, if you feel these symptoms, take take some tums. You know, take take a you know take a gram of calcium see if they go away. Um, and, and so that's something that you can do right away. You want to see where that calcium level is. You know what I mean? So in, in these patients, if they're calling you, you, you have them come in and you check their calcium if they're symptomatic, uh, because the difference between being symptomatic with the calcium of, you know, seven and a half or eight versus six and a half, you know, or, or seven is, is very different, right? You think about that differently and how you're going to manage it and how you're going to um, do surveillance on that patient. Um, but the main thing, the first thing you do is tell them, you know, take some calcium.
0: And I think we could probably spend a whole nother hour talking about just this, but what are the different options for calcium supplementation and how might they differ? And in that same vein, do you have any advice on how to take calcium supplementation so, so that it's absorbed appropriately?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, calcium, uh, mostly, you know, we, we think about calcium in in the form of calcium citrate or calcium carbonate. Um, there's different brands and and they're, they're purchased over the counter um, these days patients can get all kinds of different kinds of calcium. Okay. And, and some calcium brands are, you know, marketed as being better than others and so forth. And, and the main thing is that you're, you're looking at what the total elemental calcium is in, in what you're taking. Okay. And so that's how we kind of determine how effective it is. There are certain brands that are a little more effective just based on the fact that you absorb them better. Uh, so for example, um, you know, uh, calcium citrate is absorbed a little bit better. And so sometimes we we use that um, for that reason. Um, but the main thing, you know, to tell patients is that when they're on a the calcium supplement, um, it really doesn't matter too much uh, where they buy it or which one they're on, but, but they need to be taking it. You know, they need to be taking it pretty consistently. Um, at the same time, um, or before that, you know, I'll say that when you take calcium, it's better to be taken with food, and it's better to be taken um, instead of one whole chunk all once a day. You want to kind of split it up. So if you're taking, you know, a calcium supplement, you could take it twice a day with food, um, and that's the best way to absorb calcium. Um, keep in mind that calcium is is just calcium, and uh, when we think about why someone has low calcium, um, in this setting. Um, if this is going to be persistent, um, or even in the short term setting, uh, you have to remember that the issue here, oftentimes, is that parathyroid hormone um, is is low or gone. Okay, so if we're if we're talking about hypocalcemia from hypoparathyroidism, um, when you think about what parathyroid hormone does, remember that it is responsible for activating vitamin D, and without that activated vitamin D, you can't absorb calcium from your diet and so forth, and so. In those patients that have profound and persistent hypocalcemia from hypoparathyroidism, it is not enough to just replace their calcium. You have to replace um, their um, activated vitamin D, right, because they don't have PTH to do that job. And so that's where calcitriol comes in. And so when you see these patients um, after surgery, you might put them on calcitriol and calcium. Uh, Patients that have long-term, long-standing hypoparathyroidism, they will need both of those um, to maintain their calcium levels.
0: And do we expect post-operative hypoparathyroidism in the iatrogenic setting to recover? How long does it usually take, and at what point would you consider it permanent hypoparathyroidism?
1: You know, so the overwhelming majority of patients with post-operative hypoparathyroidism are going to recover. Um, usually, uh, they will recover within the first couple months after surgery, and, and when you see these patients, you know, back in clinic, you, you can notice their calcium levels are looking better, and you can stop the calcitriol, and usually you can do that safely. Um, but there's always some that don't. And, and a lot of times uh, this is uh, predictable um, based on how extensive the surgery was, you know, or, or the, the kind of why the surgery was being done. If it was done for, you know, recurrent, for example, thyroid cancer, or you know, where you expect that, that maybe you remove these glands or that they weren't easily seen, you know, so a lot of times um, we can expect it, but I'll say that you know, sometimes this happens, you know, we don't expect it and and it does happen. And so it's something you have to be aware of and and certainly test for um, and know that you have to replace both calcium and calcitrone.
0: Moving back to parathyroid surgery specifically. So another complication important to parathyroid surgery is that of hungry bone syndrome. Dr. Thompson, what is it? Who's at risk for developing it? And how can it be recognized and treated?
1: You know, so hungry bone syndrome is basically a severe persistent hypocalcemia, uh, that results from uh, increased bone resorption uh, following surgery. And and this is um, usually seen in those patients that have the highest PTH levels, right? So um, they're at high risk if, if they have such high PTH levels that they get this significantly increased bone resorption uh, following removal of the parathyroid glands. Um, and so basically what happens is that after surgery, uh, the calcium uh, continues to be taken up by this demineralized bone all of a sudden, and it leads to need to really replace calcium very aggressively um, in order to maintain serum calcium. And oftentimes these patients are going to be in the hospital for a long time. And um, it can be days before you really start to see some improvement. Um, they, they need a lot of monitoring. They may need calcium drips. Um, one way to kind of, um, you know, hopefully improve the likelihood that this is going to be a significant issue is to be very cognizant of their vitamin D levels um, prior to surgery and really try your very best to improve vitamin D status in those patients that are vitamin D deficient. Um, and that helps cut back on, um, you know, basically this increased bone resorption.
0: Dr. Chang, what kind of outcomes can we expect after hyperparathyroidism is surgically treated? And how often are you required to go back and do revision surgery?
2: Yeah, great question. So, in the overwhelming kind of majority of patients, we cure them surgically with with one operation. So something like more than 95% will get a biochemical cure from surgery. Uh, In a small percentage of people, we we don't. And so that can be from a number of different reasons. It can be one of those unusual situations we talked about earlier, like a supernumerary gland, or you can have an ectopic gland that's hiding somewhere. Um, Ectopic glands can hide anywhere from your skull base down to your mediastinum. And so they can be in unusual, uh, unusual anatomic locations that you weren't prepared to explore. Um, it can be things like unrecognized multi-glandular disease. Um, it can be just that you didn't find it. Um, as we talked about parathyroid, even adenomas can be very small. They often look like the tissue around it. And so that can be experience-related, luck-related, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you just can't find it. Um For things like re-exploration or revision surgery, it's a much bigger deal. So things like complication rates are higher uh, when you haven't found it once the first time, the odds of you finding it um, the second time are not not nearly as high. And so um, it is a thing that happens, unfortunately. Um, It's a fairly small percentage of patients, um, but it, it does happen.
0: Dr. Thompson, I feel like you guys get to follow up with them more closely afterwards. Do you find that these people have a resolution in their symptoms and complaints from prior, or is the lab value kind of what we're looking at in terms of cure?
1: Yeah, you know that's a great question. So the majority of these patients, if um, you know, if, if they're cured, you know, for example, a patient with primary hyperparathyroidism that has an adenoma removed and the calcium returns to normal. Um, most of those cases, you know, we, we see the patient, the calcium is normal. They're not needing calcitrile or anything like that. Um, and that's it, you know, for our follow-up, you know, I, I always tell patients, you know, you want to have the calcium checked annually by your primary doctor. And, um, certainly if it increases, you let us know, but it's unlikely, you know, and and usually then, um, we're done following, you know, those patients. Now, um, if, if, for example, it's part of a a genetic syndrome, like MEN one you know, obviously we, we would follow those patients, if it's someone who has developed hypoparathyroidism, you know, as a result, uh, we would follow uh, those patients. If it's someone who has longstanding, you know, complications of, of hyperparathyroidism like osteoporosis, you know, that's how we identified them. We're going to follow those patients. But the vast majority of your patients with um, hyperparathyroidism, once we normalize the calcium, they can just be discharged and followed by their primary care doctor.
0: And you sort of answered my last question with this, uh, Dr. Thompson, but Dr. Chang, how often do you follow up with these patients after surgery?
2: Uh, so it, it's really patient dependent. I would say most of the times I'll see the patient um, within the first week or two after surgery just for a standard post-operative visit to check the wound. And then after that, it kind of depends um, sort of what you found during surgery, how well they're doing. Um, it's not uncommon that I would just see them for one post opera visit and um, not see them again, but... Um, kind of depends.
0: Well, I mentioned this at the beginning, but before we wrap up, uh, in preparing for today's episode and also in my experience so far with endocrine surgery, I've really noticed how important it is to work closely with endocrinologists when you're doing endocrine surgery. Dr. Thompson, what advice would you give to surgeons wanting to work more cohesively with their endocrinologists, both from a patient care standpoint and in building professional relationships?
1: You know, I found that it's very, um, important to have effective communication, um, with, with your surgeon, you know, some of these cases in my mind seem very clear cut. You know what I mean? It's, it's someone that has an adenoma. We, we identify it on imaging, you know, I send it it's not a big deal, but a lot of these cases, there's all kinds of things that are, are not clear, you know, or we're wondering about or wondering, should we do this? Or should we do, you know, remove three and a half glands, should we remove one gland, like what, you know, what, what's all kinds of questions. And a lot of times, Um, discussing them, you come up with a better plan than you had before, you know? And, and I think that um, not only just for, for planning for surgery, but then keep in mind too, that some of these very complicated patients, especially um, we help in the hospital following these patients and we help manage the hypocalcemia and so forth. And so preparing patients to have a better outcome is something that, that we can help with as well. You know what I mean? And so when we have this open communication um, with our surgeons, I think that the patients are better prepared um, and they're in a better position to do better after surgery. And, and oftentimes um, we come up with better plans. So I, I, I really encourage that. Um, we're very lucky to have such great relationships um, with our surgeons. And I, I never hesitate to reach out with questions on particular patients or um, you know, just, just looking for advice.
0: And Dr. Chang, do you have any advice or tips that you've had so far in terms of working with your endocrinology colleagues?
2: Yeah, definitely. So what I tell my residents um, is that your endocrinologist is smarter than you. That's <laughs> not, not meant to be a controversial kind of put-down statement. It's it's really just an objective fact. And so I think it's important to, to rely on the people that are smarter than you. Um, the, um, the other thing I have to add to that is that um, I agree, communication is key, but as surgeons, um, one thing we don't always think about is that it can be, we can be hard to communicate with. Um, One, you know, as surgeons, we're not saying that we're all abrasive, impatient personalities, but we certainly have a higher percentage of that than other specialties. Um, And that can be something that we just don't think of. And we also are very busy. So we're often in the operating room. If you've ever tried to call into an operating room to talk to a surgeon, you, you know that that's not always an easy thing to do. And so it's important to make yourself available and to communicate and recognize that we can be hard to uh, get a hold of sometimes.
0: Well, this has been an excellent episode and I hope one that our listeners are able to come back to frequently when they're uh, looking to prepare for parathyroid cases. So thanks for taking your time today to meet with us. Before we finish up, do either of you have any additional comments you'd like to add? Nothing specific from my end?
1: No, nothing I can think of. Yeah, thanks yeah so Thank you for the opportunity.
0: In summary, primary hyperparathyroidism is driven by elevated secretion of parathyroid hormone by the parathyroid glands. Parathyroid hormone plays an important role in calcium homeostasis by increasing serum calcium through its effect on multiple end organs. Roughly 85% of cases of primary hyperparathyroidism are from benign etiology. Primary hyperparathyroidism is most often discovered on routine laboratory values, and patients may not note symptoms related to their parathyroid disease until after their disease has been managed. However, symptoms of hypercalcemia, think of stones, bones, groans, and psychiatric overtones, are not uncommonly noted. Surgical management can be curative in nearly 95% of cases and should be especially considered in young, healthy patients or older patients with disease sequelae. Interoperative parathyroid hormone monitoring is predictive of cure when there's a 50% drop and return to normal parathyroid hormone levels 10 minutes after a section from baseline values. Caring for patients with parathyroid disorders is best achieved when working in close conjunction with colleagues in medical endocrinology and building interdisciplinary relationships can help ensure high quality care to your patients. And now we'll ask our questions. First question, what percentage decrease of interoperative parathyroid hormone levels is predictive of cure for hyperparathyroidism? And how many minutes after a section is this typically taken? drop of intraoperative parathyroid hormone should be reduced by at least 50% or greater and or into normal ranges of parathyroid hormone levels. This is usually taken about 10 minutes after the parathyroid glands have been excised. Next question, what is the anatomic relationship of the superior and inferior parathyroid glands in relation to the recurrent laryngeal nerve? You can think of the mnemonic IAMSLP. The inferior gland is anteromedial to the nerve, and the superior gland is lateral posterior in relation to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Last question What are the NIH consensus guidelines that favor surgical management of hyperparathyroidism? Overall, these favor operating on healthy patients who are young or in older patients with disease sequelae. The NIH consensus guidelines do state more specific guidelines including age less than 50, calcium one point above the upper limit of normal, or a DEXA with a T-score less than negative 2.5 at the lumbar spine, total hip, femoral neck, or distal radius, Um, having a vertebral fracture on imaging, having kidney stones or nephrocalcinosis on imaging, having a creatinine clearance less than 60 milliliters per minute or having a 24-hour urine calcium greater than 400 milligrams per deciliter, and increased stone risk on stone analysis. Okay, well that about wraps it up for the day. Thank you all for tuning in, and thanks Dr. Thompson Dr. Chang for your time. We'll catch you next time on ENT in a nutshell.